Welcome to my basement, everybody. I have got a special audio-only episode for you guys today. Not long ago, I was the host of XDS 20 Adapt, the External Development Summit, uh, which usually takes place in Vancouver, BC, which is where I am based. And usually it's an event where people come from all over the world from the external development scene. These are studios that work on uh, massive projects. They pick up all kinds of work. Um, and uh, there's a lot of shared information uh, across the sector at this summit. It's an, a phenomenal thing to be a part of, and I've learned a lot about game development. And I've been able to interview a lot of really fascinating people over the years in the live events that we've been able to put on uh, with XDS every year. This year, of course, I don't know if you've heard, but we're in the middle of a pandemic. And so XDS had to adapt, hence the adapt in its title. And the organizers asked me to host the entire event. And as part of XDS 20 Adapt, we put together a bunch of keynote conversations. And I was uh, lucky enough to chat with extraordinary people through the course of the summit. Um, we have uh, Amy Hennig is uh, one of the people that I communicated with. I talked to the Bala brothers, that's uh, Karthik and Guha Bala that uh, run a studio called Velen. You may be familiar with their work at Vicarious Visions. We talked to them about uh, you know the, the work that they're doing with their brand new company, Velen, which just released Mario Kart Live Home Circuit with Nintendo for Nintendo Switch. And in this episode, I had a chance to sit down with the one and only Craig Duncan, who runs the studio known as Rare. And it was a phenomenal experience to be able to interview this man. He's got lots of great stories to tell. Um, and it's also very cool to be able to share this, you know, kind of exclusive conversation that was meant for the attendees of XDS. They were kind enough to let me share them with you, all of our Vic's Basement listeners out there. So without further ado, let's get started with my conversation with Craig Duncan. It's one of the most illustrious game studios on planet Earth, and welcome everyone to Craig Duncan from Rare. He is the studio head of an, a company that has given us so many fantastic titles over the years. And Craig, it is phenomenal and so terrific that you are here with, um, with me today, but to uh, share some stories with everybody that's watching around the world right now. First of all, sir, how are you doing out there? Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's wonderful to be here, Victor. Good to see you. Um, I have been invited to speak at XDS for a number of years. There's always been a schedule clash or projects or something, some reason. Um, and when uh, the team reached out to me this year, it was like, hey, we're doing it virtually. So you have no excuse. So you absolutely have to come. So <laughs> Um, no, it's it's great to be here. I'm I'm doing great. I think like um, like everyone else, going through our own version of what does it mean to be remote and and do everything. And and we're just trying to look out for you know look out for our team, make sure they're looking out for their families, looking out for my family, and you know just trying to make sure everyone's okay. Because I think when people are going through tough stuff, I think that's the that's the best we can do is just help each other and support each other. Got to keep checking in. Absolutely. That's kudos, to, kudos to your set deck team out there putting up the uh, Black Sabbath <laughs> record. Uh, props on that, man. That's awesome. Great background. Um, Craig, let's, let's dig into uh, your history a little bit, uh, a little bit here. Um, let's roll back the clock uh, pre-Rare. Uh, okay. What brought you into the games industry in the beginning? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I grew up a gamer and, and, you know, loved playing games. I think for me, um, it was very much the, the uh, I mean, going way, way back, Commodore 64 and Commodore C16. Um, yeah. My Super Nintendo was the first console I paid for out of my my own money. You know, I, I had a paper round like Paperboy, the arcade machine. Um, That's how and, I started too, man. <laughs> and bought, bought a Super Nintendo, used to buy games, um, which just seems funny to me in a Game Pass world we're in now. You know, I remember paying nice. £65 for a cartridge when I was 15 years old. Like, so, um, and, you know, so gaming's always been a thing. And then my, my career led me more into engineering and then sort of leadership and project management. And I did that for about 10 years before before I kind of really realized gaming was an industry and there were games companies and developers. So I ran a software development development company outside of games doing safety critical flight control software. Lots of really, you know, you'd get a spec and it would be literally a telephone directory of, Hey, go make this in software. Um, And then a friend of mine was actually a games journalist and, you know, we were just talking about software development and is software development like game development and I and I took a punt. Codemasters were looking for a development manager back then. I kind of thought I can, you know, I can manage large software projects and people. And game development is is that, but with the creativity. Um, so I went in for my interview. I said, "Hey, I'll take the games Pepsi challenge with anyone. Like I know games. Like, but they were two distinct things. Work and play were very very separate. Sure. Um, and then when I realized I could actually bring them together and, you know, got to work on some really, you know, really great projects at Codemasters and, you know, really learned how to make games um, and spent six, seven years there, then moved on to Midway Games, spent a couple of years there, moved on to Sumo Digital, a couple of years there. Um, how old were so you I- when you realized that the, uh, that fusion, that sort of, um, uh, you know, that maturity that you needed to kind of make something practical, but also creative at the same time was your fit. I, I think I'm still learning it. And, <laughs> and I think it's, it's always about for me, you know, what, what are the people that are building, you know, the project, the game, the idea, what are yeah. they, what are they trying to do and, and how can I help them? And, and I mean, everything is a creative problem if you look at it yes yes even even before i got into games i think when i got into games just opening my eyes that there were so many great designers and artists and programmers and audio people and and producers and and you need all of those specialist skills and you need them all Mm. to shine and you know i've i've been lucky to be in leadership positions where i can help them and create a culture around them doing their best work because i'm a very very average artist and a very terrible technical programmer and a very average design like i think i could do those jobs you're the glue to you're 10% the glue of what they do so <laughs> i try and do the bit i can do which is help them help them achieve what they want to achieve 
You know, I, I always like the um, the perspective that that uh, I guess it's the UK um, uh, sort of the game journalism circle has around video games and, and maybe the way that it's perceived as well uh, internally at development studios. The idea that you write games, you know, yes. that it's probably not like that anymore. But, I, you know, in the early days, you, you would write a new game and you would kind of publish a new game. And there's there is a, an analogy there to an author or a comic book writer. You're really crafting... Uh, and you know a world for us to escape in and you are writing it in with the same kinds of disciplines but you're then you know edging so close to physicalization as well which is something that is so profound with game making absolutely and and the thing for me which i never really knew is growing up reading comics being a nerd playing rpgs playing video games yeah like I spent 20 years training myself how to run a studio just just right. through just being enveloped in in create and and I'd read all the magazine I think like Superplay was my favorite magazine I used to read back then or or Amiga cool. format or CU Amiga going going further back and and so I'd just I'd read and absorb and I'd play everything and I'd read everything and I'd play all these demos and not really with an eye on a games career and then obviously when a games career came came to be and I chatted to people that had grown up very similar, you know, grew up playing and loving games, I just had all of this life experience of like, hey, I, I know games because I've I've lived it for for my whole entire life and still play you, now, you know. But you also had this other discipline, which I think is uh, it, it is fantastic and also a great message for all of the young people and all of the the different you know external developers that are tuning in for this right now, which is awesome. I want to get your thoughts though on the perspective that you had because you work with huge American companies like Microsoft yep. and uh, Japanese parent companies, and uh, uh, so you have this unique kind of perspective on what makes the UK development scene special. What makes it unique? Yeah, and it, it's it, you're right. It's a it's a global industry now, and like I say, I've been very lucky that I've worked for some U.S. companies. I've done independent development with Japanese companies, and and you know, I think, yeah, I, I just worked with a bunch of perspective, and every company's unique, and every company has mm. their ways, and um, and and ultimately, individuals, as, as you mentioned earlier, you know, the craft of making games will be different team to team, studio to studio. And I think that's, that's great. Um, and we should never try and homogenize that. Let, let each studio do it their way. Cause I think that's what gets you different and unique. Um, for me, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's evolving so much from when I started. I mean, I've, I'm coming up for 10 years at Rare. I was, I think, 2003. So, um, you know, seven, eight years before that in different games companies. And making games now is is so fundamentally different to making games back then. And, you know, it takes more people, take like the, the, the bars higher, there's more competition, there's more digital marketplaces that like just everything has been amplified and magnified. And, and I think, you know, just being able to ship it like anyone that makes a game of any sort, you know, be it in a game jam right through to a massive AAA service like Sea of Thieves, like is, is a phenomenal effort. Um, and I just think it, it's 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 evolved so much, but it's still evolving as well. Like it's yeah. not, it's, it's never going to stop. 
And I think that's part of the challenge of making games. How do you keep with it? How do you keep thinking ahead of what's going to happen? Do you have to think globally? Like when you start uh, out on something? I mean, you, Rare has been such a fundamental UK, you know, pulse into the world. You know, you can point at all of their classic games, Conquer and, and uh, you know, Donkey Kong 64, Diddy Kong, Ray, like all of it, Perfect Dark. There's been this uniquely, and of course they're, you know, NES stuff. There's always been this kind of sense of humor, the sensibility that you can typify as being unique to rare. Is it yeah. harder to manage that as you get bigger and bigger? So, so I think thinking globally is important at a business level, but at a creative level, it's really about the game reflecting the people that are making it. Like it's mm. about the creativity coming through those people and, and, and the ideas they have. So, you know, the fact right. that a bunch of games that, you know, Greg Males has led at Rare have that kind of humor and like, cause that's Greg and that's what he, like that's what he brings. And that's some of the things that you can see him in view and, and others on the team, um, you know, be it, you know, Robin Beanland's music or, you know, the, everyone brings their piece into, into the game. They met, you know, Ryan Stevenson, who's the art director on Everwild, you know, also art direct or, you know, was involved in the concept of Viva Pinata and, and some of that art style. So, you know, wow. ev everyone brings their. I love thing. that you just casually drop some names. Like, it's just <laughs> poof, like so many big projects. It's amazing. But that, they're the wonderful people I get to work with. And, and, yeah. you know, the, the Britishness, just to, to sort of bring back to that point, I think is maybe more just the, a couple of things. I think just the humility, the, like, mm. you know, I think as British people, we're kind of quite reserved about things. And it's like, yeah, we did some stuff. We made a game. Hope people like it. Um, yeah. where, whereas, you know, when I turn on my more American Craig, when I'm going and pitching and things, it's like, hey, the team's doing awesome work and see if these is like nothing else. And I'm really pleased, like, it's fantastic. And, and um, so I think you've got a bit of that. And then also the UK is pretty small. So everyone kind yeah. of knows everyone, you know, so just who you are, reputation. And, and I mean that in a good way, you know, being able to pick up the phone to someone at another studio, like being able to help each other out. Like it's got a quite tight community in the UK. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what, what I'd always say to people is what people say about you and, re and you know, recommendations and like, and, and whether that's your, uh, an outsource developer or you're a partner or you're going for a job or whatever that is, you know, it's, it's really good to, to kind of do, do a good job, build a positive relationship with the people you work with. Cause fundamentally at some point, someone's going to pick up the phone and go, Hey, Vic, that Vic, yeah, that Victor guy, what's he like? And he's like, yeah, he's okay. <laughs> like, you know, and, and that's like, I think that's, that's the network effect of having a small industry that's grown really fast. That's awesome. But yeah, if, if we could just spread around that that Victor guy is okay around the world, that, that would be awesome. Started with Craig Duncan, studio head yeah. of Rare. I love it. Um, let, speaking of Rare, uh, you know, obviously it's a legendary company. Um, was that intimidating or was that just, you know, absolutely unequivocally, uh, you know, alluring? Was that it? you had to go there because this was, you know, an amazing place to like a shining light for you? Yeah, it, it was absolutely the second one. I think from a career opportunity to, and like I said, I'd, I'd done some 
what I think reasonable things in, in games companies before that. But to get a phone call saying, hey, do you want to come in and head up Rare? Um, it's just one, it's one of those, you know, defining career kind of phone calls. So that, that's like uh, Daniel Craig's James Bond call in a way, uh, right? Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. It's, it's, it's up there, man. I mean, studio it's, head Rare, James, it's, they're pretty close, I think. And, and then you go through the whole kind of, you know, like I've, I've ran independent projects. I've worked for game publishers. I've never ran a first party studio for Microsoft. So just that whole, right. what's right. new to it, it is what led me to it. Like, Hey, that's something new. That's something different. Um, then you go through, you know, what do I think rare is like, I actually had to go and change my gamer tag so I could go back and replay the rare back catalog on Xbox 360 at the time, just because I didn't want all my friends in the industry who are all my online gaming friends to see like, well, hey, why is Craig started playing all the rare games? Like that's- Ah, yes. Like, so, <laughs> so again, you, you sort of think about that stuff. Um, and then when you join, it, it, it does become a job, which is what are we trying to do? You know, rare would just ship in the first Connect Sports at that time. Right. You know, didn't know how it was going to go. You know, Connect Sports was then phenomenally successful, like, you know, in, insanely successful. Yes. Um, and then it's like, well, what do you build on that? What's the basis of future Rare? You know, what does Rare look like five years from now, 10 years from now? And then slowly but surely, it comes away from being a job and you fall in love with the place and you yeah. get to know the people as as friends and colleagues and people you work with a long time and then it becomes much more about okay what's the culture we want at rare and what do we want rare's mark to be on the industry and what do we want the future of rare to be and i always one of the things that always inspired me about rare was their way that they put their mark on gaming whether it was reinventing genres or or building you know what at the time seemed quite out there different games and, totally. and it's it's easy to look back and do historic revision on that and say hey you know rare did all these new things but at the time like they were just making a lot of really bold and different choices which were betting on the people that were making those games so it's like well what does that look like in 2015 and 2017 and 2018 and 2020 what's what's rare creating games the world doesn't have in this generation of gaming. Yeah, and I, I would imagine that because there are you know, so many gamers like myself that, that uh, look back with the rose-colored glasses and you see that legacy, that it's also, uh, it's a weight to carry because you don't want to be a studio that's just living in an, in an era. You want to yes. also evolve right. with the taste. And, uh, you know... Sea of Thieves is a very unique concept that has a rare sensibility, but it's not necessarily the game we thought Rare would make, but it's yep. turned out to be just a phenomenal success for you guys. Talk a little bit about the risk and um, the challenges and the eventual massive rewards of Sea of Thieves. Yeah, and thinking about it as risk is one way of thinking about it. And, and I think that there's sort of, and I'm probably not going to articulate this very well, but mm. th there's sort of two ways to think about risk. You either prove that there's a market and there's an appetite and an audience and, and a way of making the kind of game you're making 
to alleviate risk. And you can say, hey, there's other games like that. There's a big audience that want that. There's and, and you kind of prove the risk. Or you can take another view of risk, which is, hey, if we go make something that's genuinely different to anything else out there, like then that will find its own audience and that will find you're people. Creating that love a it category. Because you're creating something that doesn't exist. And and yeah. and then the risk is actually about do we believe we can go and do that? And can we go get the whole team on this journey together to go and create a kind of game that there isn't very many proxies and other games that are in the same category have done things in very different ways. Like when we said things like, you know, Sea of Thieves, we want you to go out and sail. And every time, every time you play the game, we want it to be different because you could bump into any other different players and we're not going to artificially have levels where we prevent you playing with your friends. Like if you've played Sea of Thieves for a thousand hours or one hour, you can join up in the same crew. We're not going to put any barriers and, and all of these, and I remember chatting to, to, to press at the time when we did the first round of press, seemed like just insane decisions to make. Like, yeah. and everyone's like, well, no, surely you just go and level up and then you match make by level. And it's like, well, that's a way of doing it. But, but we, we literally want to remove all barriers of anyone to play together. And we want them to go out on adventures. And we're going to continue to update and evolve the game over time into the future. So we built what we know we shipped as a platform with a lot of really strong foundational elements that we could go and grow and change. And then there's just, you know, the notion of some of the special things like see if these is a game about communicating with your crew and about, yeah. you know, doing mundane things like repairing your ship and doing the rigging and finding treasure and reading maps and and you describe all those things and people go well, what's sea of thieves about and you say well it's a pirate game and you do all these things and everyone's like well that's like we've never seen a game like that like there wasn't there wasn't a proxy for what we built it's um, a couch co-op game that you can play all over the world at the same time and it's all about collaboration the thing man and and that, when your ship is sinking there is nothing like ah i gotta get the water out that's <laughs> it and it means different things to different people you know to some people and you know what we've been going through with all the pandemic like you know we have people reach out to us and say see if these is a game that we bring to you know connect us so with cool. family and we like yeah. We're playing Sea of Thieves more because it's where we hang out together. And for some people, it is about being Pirate Legend. And for some people, like we had a, a group on um, on social media that were charting the storm moving round in Sea of Thieves. So they were kind of oh like storm, storm chasing, is that called? <laughs> where, where they were literally. And so like every day they'd be posting like, here's the map of Sea of Thieves. Here's the storm. We followed it. And, and, and obviously what they uncovered was the kind of algorithm that we coded on the storm which is it does sure. follow a kind of loop around the world and um but they they kind of storm chased it and then there's other people that you know map out all the um you know all the the, the sort of um points of interest on all the maps and like so the the game means different things to to different people but what we love about it is it was something that we had a core vision for what it what we wanted it to be you know we we still play it regularly the team are still out there in the community and and we have like sea of thieves is as strong now as it's ever been you know we've had more people play probably in the first half of 2020 than all of 2019 which was bigger than 2018 
and we're more excited about the things going in the future and and this like that's kind of not the way games are supposed no. to work they're supposed and now to it's going to launch have a big on, launch and yeah now it's going to be on xbox series x and and uh I, i'm about to dive in and you've been saying some great things uh we have to get into some external development questions okay. and we also have a uh, a q a that's opened up and i see a couple of questions in there already um okay. but i would be remiss there's two things that I think will sort of tip us into that direction. Um, one of them is you worked with Dilala, an external studio that you brought un under the umbrella or the wing of yep. uh, Rare to help uh, craft Battletoads. And that was kind of a new thing, I think, for Rare in general. Uh, but talk to me about that experience and if you know, maybe some of these companies, these these uh, potential partner companies out there should be thinking about approaching uh, Rare to m maybe do something similar. Yeah, I mean, we, we get a lot of approaches. So yep. as you can imagine, a company like Rare with the history and back catalog and, and everything that we've got. Um, and and I think I've been pretty clear on what, what Rare's mission is. You know, Rare's creating the games of the future that, and I think Rare's always done that somewhat um or else we'd still be making jetpack uh yeah. for 35 years so so i think i'd be rare cool with that by the way i, I wouldn't mind I new jetpack, jetpack so. as well. yeah. Yeah. um but rare focusing on you is is totally makes a, a lot of sense to me in the in the culture of the company um so getting asked is is fine but i think for me i always believe in that balance of it's got to be the right team the right idea at the right time and, you know, we were in this really interesting place with uh, Xbox Game Pass, which, you know, Sea of Thieves was the first game that shipped day and date into that. Right. Before and when we greenlit Battletoads, we hadn't gone and acquired a bunch of studios like we had in Xbox First Party. So we, we were very much having conversations about like, hey, what kind of content do we think we want to add to Xbox Game Pass? And what? Yes. And we knew, we knew Sea of Thieves was working and doing really well. Um, and, I, and, you know, one of the conversations I had internally with Phil and Matt was like, hey, you know, we got this really interesting um, team that, like, want to do a Battletoads game. You know, AJ, that's the studio head at Dalala, is a massive Battletoads fan. Like, that, if you were speaking to him, that was the game that got him into the industry. And, you know, fast cool. forward five years, he's running his development studio. Um, and they had some hand-drawn animation tech that they'd shown me at GDC there wasn't Battletoads, it was just, it was another game. And they said, hey, look, we can draw these animation cells and we can scan them and put them in. And then basically the game looks like a hand-drawn cartoon. Um, so fast forward a year, you know, they're looking at their next project. I've got the memory of this bit of tech that I was shown. Like, hey, we could do a Battletoads game. We're in the point where we're looking for content for Game Pass, so we're willing to sort of try new things. And and I go, okay, get me a pitch. And they get us a pitch. They come up to Rare. They talk us through it. Um, and then we we go ahead with it. So so again, and you know, they had to build out their team, but it was definitely that you know the game, the team, the format, the relationship they had with us, the format, the market yeah. opportunity. Um, and I think we've just celebrated a million players on Battletoads. Amazing, um, man! Which is That's which awesome. is phenomenal, you know. So, and they they did a great job. And and I what I like about that is is it was the, it was the passion of the project that made it come to life. 
yes. which I think is very different than me, you know, as a studio head or our business manager going, hey, we've got this IP. Yes. If we can go find we... someone to make it and we right. pay whatever, I'll just make up some numbers and we pay a million pounds to someone to make it. If we make a million and 100,000, then that's a good thing to do. And I, I always think that's a bit of a flawed approach because I think you want to be building games that people are really from passionate heart. about making yeah, and from 100%. heart. And, yes. and Dilal and the team, I know like every day they woke up wanting to come and make the best Battletoads game they can. And that was Greg, really I think your, what... your inbox is going to be very interesting after this conversation, <laughs> my friend. Uh, but I, I would be remiss if we didn't get a little bit more information on Everwild, which absolutely blew me away when I saw the little teaser in the, uh, the showcase video. What is Everwild? And when do you think we might be playing it? Yeah, so, so I'm not going to answer either of those questions. But okay. uh, what, what I'll say is uh, Louise and Ryan and the team are I, I, I like, so passionate about what they're building. You know, and it's, it's a game about nature and magic, and we've already said that. Um, and you know, the team really, like, we're really focused on can we give you unforgettable experiences in nature and magic that you've never had in any other game. So okay. that. And the, the team are working super hard. Like we, we, we feel really good about wherever Wild's going. That's a good pitch for a game, my friend. I'm very excited about that game. Okay, we're going to pivot into uh, some Q&A because I think it's going to yep. tie into some external development questions that I wrote down as well. Uh, but I know people have been patiently waiting. Um, we have uh, Alvina Antonova. H Hello, Craig. Thank you for this session. What is your opinion? Is Brexit influenced somehow the game de de development in the UK? How is, how is game development in the UK through this Brexit stuff that's been going on? Yeah, I mean... And I'm definitely no expert on politics. Apart from yeah. play video games, it seems like a great escapism from politics. Um, yes. I, I think for us, it's really about making sure our teams are supported. So things like um, overseas hiring, you know, so rare, you know, we employ a lot of people in the UK, but obviously, you know, we, we hire globally. Um, so it's just making sure, again, if we've got people on working visas, that any Brexit requirements don't impact that as we mm. continue to recruit and hire. Um, that was a lot of the questions we were getting pre-COVID and, and pre the, the lockdown. Um, so, so I think for us, it's really about how do we continue to run a great business in the UK? And, and we... You know, we do collaborate with uh, Tiger and Yuki and the and the 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 uh, the groups that go and lobby government. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I think for us, it's like you know the best business we can build, the best you know being a great employer, being a great company, um, yeah. and pushing like and actually having Microsoft behind us is a big asset in that way. Um, right. So I don't think we've hit a Brexit hurdle that we haven't been able to go push against, like visas or employment legislation. Um, but what we, a couple of years the UK has has had to deal with, my friend. Holy moly, man! Absolutely. And yeah. and I think as an employer, what we can do is is be a great company to work for, and hopefully give our staff the security that so they don't worry about that stuff as much. Right. 
Uh, okay, Sea of Thieves must, this is from Junie, Sea of Thieves must have been and likely still is a whirlwind of new development challenges and experience. How has it influenced your internal and external development process both before and since launch? Great question, Junie. Yep, um, so we have more ideas for Sea of Thieves than we ever have the capacity and time and, <laughs> and to, to do. And, and that's good because that shows we've got something that we can continue to evolve um, one of the challenges I set to the team when we first started with Sea of Thieves is, is we, we're in this for the long, we're in Sea of Thieves for the long game. We're, we're going to be committed to a multi-year journey, which we have been. Um, and to do that, you've got to do it in a sustainable way. Like you can't just like, you, you can't even do the, hey, let's work really hard and then we'll all go take a few weeks off. And like you've, because the game's always live and we're always shipping, we're always shipping updates. So how can we do that in a sustainable way? Right. And then the other thing is I didn't want our ambitions to be constrained by our capacity. So if we're going to do it in a sustainable way and we're going to continue to put new things into the game and evolve the game, then, you know, we've got our full-time team at Rare. We've got some contract teams so we actually started working with some external development partners to help fill out some of the areas. So be it engine dev, be it gameplay features. I mean, we've always done um, a bunch of outsourcing and asset creation, probably 60 to 70% of Sea of Thieves is built outside of Rare. Wow. But it's really about, you know, having that core team with a vision so we've got our internal team, we've got, you know, we, we've always got a set of contractors supporting our teams. We've got external outsource partners, we've got external development partners, and it's really about carving up the right bits of the game amongst all of those groups. So we can continue to push great ideas in Sea of Thieves and scale, but do that in a way that is very, very collaborative and and is supporting the team to make the game they want to make as well. What uh, external devs are you working with? What kinds of things do you look for in external devs? And um, have you seen a lot of colleagues that you've come up with in the video game industry kind of transition to roles with external development companies? Yeah, and, and this is where, again, you know, it's, it's really about, you know, alignment at a creative and and i guess even human values level is really important you know when i speak to a studio head of a team we're going to go work with you know what what makes them tick what they're trying to do how they want to run their team what we can go do together is as important as the crib sheet i'll get with hey we've got 15 people with these skills and we've got 10 people with these skills um because you're in a relationship for the long term like and, right. and if if you can't fundamentally work with someone at a principle and value and goals level like in my experience it tends to be quite job and spec driven rather than yes. values driven um right. so we uh, we have um coconut lizard that's run by uh, bob trowan who actually um worked for me at midway games uh back and and that you know so we'd kept in touch They'd done a bunch of work for a bunch of different people. We had a need to uh, bolster some of our Unreal development. Um, they were finishing a project. So it was like, hey, we've got this work. If you want to come in and chat to the team. And 
and what I try and do then is is very much stay out of the process. So yeah. I'll I'll handshake it and I'll say, hey Bob, you know, meet Rich who runs our engine team. If you guys can go figure something out, great. Um, because again, I think as the studio boss, you've got to be careful in in, in sort of yes. over yeah. um, yes. overexposing sort of processes. And and we've actually got a bunch of good processes at Microsoft, so we'll always tender to multiple developers and multiple vendors and we'll get competing quotes which is good um we've then got a company called flicks in birmingham that are a small developer um that we worked with on a bunch of stuff for sea of thieves so run by john teal who again you know they they almost were working and it's funny now we're all remote but they, you know, we always used to say, hey, the team at Flix are like the fifth barn at Rare working on Sea of Thieves because for those that don't know, Rare's a number of barns, number of development barns. Um, awesome. But but what we try and do is, is and what we look for is people that we can work with and people that we can actually really, you know, really sort of bend the the sort of requirements and and the cohesion and ownership between the teams so we're working together so uh, as much as you can do with a partner studio you know treat them like an internal team you know so so i might go over to their studio and do an all hands or we'll share the team and progress updates with them as well as the internal team so just really envelop them as much as we can oh, that's and so then great. try and give them something that they can own that they can ship um because as we continue with Sea of Thieves and we continue to staff up Everwild, like hiring can't be the thing that stops Rare doing cool stuff. Like right. that that, right. that can't be our constraint. So right. Everwild continues to grow. Sea of Thieves continues to grow. Really the only path we've got and one we've in, really embraced over the last four or five years is actually working with external development partners. That's wonderful. Well, I know a lot of people are going to be very happy to hear that. Uh, we've got one from Curtis Charrington. Rare is and has been uh, such a uniquely creative studio. How did you approach being the GM for such a unique studio? And did you, did you do anything specific to foster that type of innovation and vision at the studio? I, I guess, starting with your era, right? This is your era of, of running Rare. Yeah, and I, I think, and I, I should, should be careful what I say to my peers at other studio. I think GMs and studio heads are somewhat overrated in terms of their, <laughs> their, their actual contribution to the process, because I think, you know, there's a bunch of people at Rare that were at Rare doing amazing work before I joined. And there's a right. bunch of people we've hired that have done amazing work since I've been there. And, and I think as a studio head, you've got to, you've got to cultivate the culture that is right for the studio. So, you know, there's always a, there's all like making games is hard. So there's always problems. And I think you yes. can go fix problems, but actually, you know, who are you going to go bet on in your team? Who are you going to build teams and organizations about in, in your studio? You know, who are the right people to lead the creative, the production, the art, the audio, like that's really what my job is and, and making sure that, you know, we put great people in great roles and we support them and, and I help the culture around them so they can do the, the best work. Um, and then the other thing, and it kind of comes back to your risk thing, is, is actually giving the team permission to go try something new. Like, you know, by writing up on our boardroom, Rare Crate, the games the world doesn't have, 
is explicitly saying, hey, let's go build something that no one's ever built before. And I, I, I back you, I support you, we're on this journey together. And if we do it right, it will be super successful. But that's saying, try, try new things. That's awesome. Uh, Jeffrey at Original Force says, how would you define the unique British flavor as a, well, I've, I kind of asked that one already, um, but good question, Jeffrey. Uh, uh, Junie says, what are your greatest learnings from essentially becoming a big sibling to the massively expanding Microsoft family? Excellent question. Adding new cultures, expertise, and experiences along the way. In a way, Microsoft, this huge behemoth is kind of crafting a sea of external developers that are all interconnected and, sh and sharing, I think at this point, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's been great. And, and actually Rare is Xbox or gaming at Microsoft's oldest acquisition. You know, we're, right. we're actually the oldest or one of the oldest, I think maybe as in turn 10, that, that make Forza um, are the oldest Xbox game studios which is mm -hmm. just funny to me and not, not old because Rare started, but actually it was acquired in 2002. Right, uh, which was a shocking development after so many years with Nintendo, but uh, it's that, turned out it. okay. So I remember, <laughs> I remember reading that as a player and as a, as a, and as a, um, as a gamer back, back then. But yep. so, and I think Rare, you know, Rare's gone through a number, you know, and even I've seen a, a number of, evolutions for the xbox gaming business and but actually as we've acquired new studios and then you've you've obviously got mojang and My minecraft that were acquired you know which, which makes rare seem like peanuts for, for compared to that <laughs> yes. um, but what i think's been great about that is you know whether it's us or mojang um you know we've been able to help with the new acquisitions and actually talk about what does it mean to run a you know, a studio like Rare in a company like Xbox in a larger company like Microsoft. And, and you know, Matt Booty does a, an amazing job of actually, you know, encouraging companies to keep their culture and do the things that make, like, makes them the company they are and work the way that works for them. And, and actually yes. it then becomes about how does Xbox and Microsoft help you as a company do the things you couldn't do before, but without over over exposing how how they're, they're supposed to work so and for me that that's great as a leader because it means i get a lot of autonomy to how to run my studio um yeah. but it means i've also got a bunch of people i can ask questions of and and the more studios we've had it, it was phenomenal we had a moment last year where we were all in the same room together and you know whether it's Fergus at Obsidian or Tim Schafer or like, and just being able to chat about games and making yeah. games and 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 just sharing notes and what are shared challenges and what are new is 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 such a phenomenal position yeah, to be in. Basically, Microsoft has just bought GDC pretty much. <laughs> it's, it can be its own thing at this point. Uh, it, it must be so surreal, and I think that what you were talking about there about sharing and you know helping your studios kind of do their best work it seems to be that's kind of their commercial philosophy as well with services with uh, all of their apps but also now game pass it's like uh, it, it's it's like it, you know a low barrier of entry to a a tremendous amount of um i mean it's services you know it's it's in the word it's it's about here you go 
you know, let's make it worth your money every month. And it's working in a huge way for Microsoft right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I go back to what I said about, you know, 15 year old Craig saving up his 60 pound of paper round money to buy a cartridge. And I think if someone had told me then, like a thing like Game Pass, where I'd have hundreds of games, and that would it's be insane. something that, like that would have blown my mind as, as a- Well, especially when you factor in rare replay, you know, where you already well, have 30, 30 games something already, games. Yeah. <laughs> which is honestly if you haven't played rare replay that is a history lesson for the video game industry and it's a tremendous experience too playing all of these classics uh i've got one from dave at phoenix labs how uh, how does the availability of trusted external partners affect your planning at a studio level and how does your understanding of external development affect the kinds of games that rare makes good questions dave Great, great questions. Um, I mean, we, we try and be in relationships for the long term. So I think mm -hmm. that helps with the planning. Um, and I think if we, it comes back to what I was saying, if you can get into a, I suppose like anything, a long-term relationship where you have a shared goal and vision, you understand what their studio is trying to do and what ours is, you can help each other and, and it, it becomes a long-term relationship. Um, so I think the more you do that, the less the capacity planning becomes something. And, and also as a service, so something like Sea of Thieves, you know, we know we're gonna be updating the game every month. So we do have a little bit of flexibility about what goes into those updates. And, you know, you can, you can plan to your creative and flex your capacity, or you can plan to your capacity and flex your creative. And I think that there's always times where you do one or the other. Um, we also try and have a kind of two to five year roadmap ahead of where we are. So right. one thing we have learned is actually the time it takes to onboard people, the time it takes to work together, the time it takes, you know, you, you don't onboard someone day one and have them effectively working day three, like it's actually six months in. So right. can we, like, if we need a new team to work with us next year, can we get a skeleton crew, no pun intended, but from, from that <laughs> developer to work on something with us while we get to know each other, while we build that longer term relationship? Because we actually know it's going to be three to six to nine months till they, till we embed with them, till we, you know, till we learn each other's foibles until we actually, you know, to people learn how crazy rare and sea of thieves is and, and get that into their mindset. And we, you know, and we just learn to work together. So if we know that two years from now, we're probably looking at partners now for, for that future. You mentioned connect uh, a little bit earlier. And I think yeah. on the, um, certainly on the game press side and the gaming enthusiast side, connect is looked at as a little bit of a, a misstep for Microsoft. Um, but you mentioned the massive success of Connect Sports, and you also worked on the Avatar stuff, and it was such yeah, an intrinsic yeah. part of Xbox uh, as Xbox One launched, and, and the, the you know back half of Xbox 360. You know, let's let's examine that for a minute. What did Connect mean for Rare, and what lessons did you take away from your uh, your time with that hardware and that uh, that philosophy? Yeah, and it, it's. You know, we, we had a bunch of fun making Kinect games. Like, I, I mean, I get the whole industry narrative and you yep. know, it's like, hey, it's not real games. And But like, we, we, we had a bunch of fun making them. We had a bunch of fun running family days where we had people come in and play testing. 
And, and actually, I mean, anything with machine vision or skeletal recognition or like, like it's super hard tech problems. Like, hey, can you yeah. make a game feel like it just responds to your gestures? Sounds lovely, but it's actually, it's, it's pretty complex stuff under the hood. Um, so I think I can even look at the Connect stuff that Rare built and, and other teams, you know, there were Connect Adventures and a, you know, a bunch of really good stuff, like Fruit Ninja, that, like, that was awesome on Connect. Yeah. And go play that and, and, and tell me, like, you're not having fun. It's like all, you know, there's a bunch of really great, I mean, Double Fine, you know, that are now a sister studio made, um, what was that, Happy Action Theatre on Connect? Yeah, like that that's was, right. That yeah. was phenomenal as well. So, so I think, you know, I can look at all that and I can look at what Rare do and actually, you know, building a very different type of game, giving people a new type of experience, you know, games that connect people and bring people together. Like, you know, Connect Games did that in room in in the same way Sea of Thieves does that online. Um, so seeing, you know, seeing something like Connect Sports, and when I joined Rare, like that was pre- I think I joined just after it launched, but I yeah. agreed to join before it launched. So there was definitely a bit of like, because you don't really know how something's going to do until it reaches the market. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it was enough for us to go do a Connect Sports Season 2, which was a bunch of just sports and ideas and things that didn't make the cut for the first one. And like, okay, can we make standing sideways and playing golf work? Can we make darts work and, you, and if you go play all those games they have a ton of heart and they have a ton of fun with them um and then what you is know, I, we had a we had a sleepover party for my daughter who's eight last year pre-covid and she, she has access to anything game wise right. you know <laughs> but um the kids I, we set up the connect and they all danced in front of the screen and they had an amazing time and there was some you know six-year-olds and seven and it was like well it's still it kind of works you know it's but, still it's fun and and that's the magic i think for me which is you know i think all games are magic you could play any game and whether you look at the water in sea of thieves or you know pick pick your the fact that games actually work online at all with millions of players should just blow everyone's mind yes but but, but the fact that you can stand in front of a camera and dance around and it responds to you and does you like that's the magic of video games that i thought connects you know actually did a really good job at um yeah. and i so good know, lessons there I, I a ton of good lessons like and and you've got you know things that we even apply now which is hey just go iterate on something until you can make it fun like right and that was important with connect as it is with any game you build it, yeah it feels like um you know with connect and ver and vr and ar there is something that will no pun intended connect all of that stuff in some insane way that we can't quite, you know, physicalize or realize just yet. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I kind of heard criticism about things like, oh, well, you know, it's just sports, but the yeah. great thing about something like sports and red made sports games back on the NES. So again, like, you know, th there's all different genres in Rare's history. The great thing about something like sports is it's pretty like, it's, it's pretty recognizable what you have to do. So therefore the, the tech and the game is the thing you're figuring out because you know how football works and you know how baseball works. And right. Like, so the, there was some really intentional choices there. Like even with Connect Sports, right? I was like, hey, you know how you would climb, like, because you do that. So actually 
like taking away the abstraction you need to learn. And I think that goes for a bunch of games. I've got a new one from Junie with coming up with uh, solid gold here. You've truly played in your community with Sea of Thieves, listening, responding, and integrating feedback while still maintaining your own creative vision and voice. Any advice to other developers out there on how this was done? Yeah, so we, I, I, I think when you say you're going to make an evolving game and you're in it for the long term and it's a multi-year journey, I, you have to be convicted on that. And then when you're, you know, like we knew when we launched Sea of Thieves, we were in Sea of Thieves for the long haul and, and we had plans for the first, you know, month, three months, six months, year, two years. Of course, all those plans changed. And the moment the, moment the game hit the market, we changed all those plans. Like, and <laughs> so, so the advice I would definitely give is, is the moment you have real players and you have real players that are part of what you do, be willing to change your plans because they're going to change and actually sticking to the plans you had. But that doesn't mean everything becomes feedback based. That just means you have a bunch of new input that helps you hone your creative vision. And really sort of tangible example I give with Sea of Thieves. So when we shipped Sea of Thieves, we said every sale on the horizon is another group of players on their own adventure. Great sales pitch, love the line what we heard loud and clear when people started playing it is like, Hey, it's really awesome to blow people to pieces on a ship, but I feel kind of bad when I do it and they sink and they, and they lose it. Wouldn't it be great if we had like AI ships. So hence the skeleton ships were born that would come into the world. So you can go and hone your crew, you know, destroying a ship, blowing it to oblivion, but because it's a bunch of skeletons, it actually doesn't care. It like, it doesn't, I'm sure it matters to them. It doesn't matter to you. You're not affecting <laughs> another player. They're they're uh, dead already. That's it's it. all good. You know, they're, yeah. they're, they're skeletons. <laughs> like it's fine. But, and then we brought in things like cursed cannibals, and we built a bunch of gameplay features and a story and a narrative about why the skeleton crews were back. But but again, that all came from what I'd say was like a a 180 decision on hey, every time you see another ship, it's going to be another crew of players right, to right. Actually, no, because and and the engagement with the skeleton fleets was really good. And because people really some people have it. guilt. <laughs> well, and, because, and, and that actually made it, and in a weird way, it actually made them, when you did bump into a human crew, different and feel different. Sure, because it wasn't yeah. just a ship battle. And it actually led to people then trading or talking. And, and so a bunch it, of stuff came out of that. It led to global diplomacy, my friend. It, Which and, I love it. We've seen a bit of that. We've seen videos of people meet in Sea of Thieves with different languages and use the text emote thing to get like phenomenal stuff. But so, so be willing to change your plans because they're going to change once, once you reach the market, once you have real players. Um, and then the other thing is just like frequency is really important and communication is really important. So you can't communicate everything to everyone, but being having and we've tried a bunch of stuff we've done videos we've done see if these news we've done monthly updates build notes you know joe does these ep sort of videos and we've, we've tried a bunch of different things but the key thing is like you know letting people know what's coming letting people know the and and not in a hey here's my 12 month roadmap because that like i said earlier that's going to change the moment you ship the game anyway right um but you know, here's an update coming this month. Here's what's 
here's what the new things are. Here's some of the stuff we're working on. And you can seed things that you're doing. Um, I mean, we don't talk about everything we're working on because it's sometimes better to show it when it's done than yes. talk about it before it's done. Yes, yes. Uh, Junie's got one more. How do you identify talent and culture? Uh, how um, I, talent and culture fit both internally and externally? And what do you do to ret retain that, uh, that talent long term? Yeah, so I, I had a really good phrase the other day, and I can't remember where I heard it from. So apologies to, if it's someone on my team that I'm not giving the credit or a talk I listened to. Um, <laughs> but I heard this really good phrase about bringing culture ads to your team, not culture fit, because culture fit kind of says, this is the way we work. This right. is our mold. Mm. Like we want people to work like us and be like us and actually bringing culture ads. So people that will bring something else to the table, people that will bring something else into our team. And, and this goes into who we are as a team, not only as a diverse group of people, but actually how do we, make sure we invite ideas from everyone how do we make sure that we don't just cultivate an extrovert's culture where the people that can be loud in a meeting or right. can be loud yeah. in a creative discussion get what their a great comment that's an amazing philosophy yes and and what i loved about it is is i think we were doing a bunch of that stuff anyway but i just hadn't heard it expressed in that way so right yeah. So it, I think it is recognizing that you have a bunch of different types of people in your team. I think we all say we want everyone's voice to be heard. We want everyone to have their opportunity to make what we do better, to contribute to what we do. And, Can we drill and down goes, on that for a second, Craig? How yeah, do you put that into practice? How do you, because obviously you know, someone like I just did can interrupt you and be loud in a room. Uh, but uh how do you hear from those people that may not want to be that vocal? And and I think that's about, you know, it, it goes through our leadership structure. It goes through our leadership training. It's making sure you have conversations with your leaders about mm. what does it mean to have a neurodiverse team? What does it mean to have introverts and extroverts? What does it mean to have different personality types? What does it mean to have people of different backgrounds or genders or like sexual orientation? Or And, and how yeah. do we want that to be? valued in our team and how do we right. want those conversations to happen and and not everyone will put their hands up in a rare all 200 person meeting or teams call but yeah. people will send an email or drop a message or speak to their manager or will talk in a group that might be a rare fitness session or you know the the team that play virtual football together or or a group that is you know maybe a support group like our women in rare group or women of xbox uk like that there, there are a bunch of channels and places where people will feel happy to give feedback and talk and it's just Wonderful. making sure you get though you know a you have those channels in the first place but b then you have ways of that feedback being expressed and we do stuff like occasional surveys and you know again just invite feedback and 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 be open about those things but it's easy it's easy to fall into a trap where you say hey i'm quite happy to have a creative debate in a room with five people therefore everyone is and and actually sorry super quick one the 
Um, even when it comes down to our interview process, you know, our interview process five years ago was absolutely come to rare, come to meet all the people. We'll do a walk around. And, and actually when we hired a bunch of people, we got some feedback that it felt a bit like a extrovert gauntlet, like, and right, just yeah. like, you've made me speak yes. to eight people. I don't know. You've made me sit and have lunch with three people I'm going to be working with. Like yes. I was yeah. like, I was wiped out by the time I'd done your interview process. So now even that feedback is like, okay, what works for you when you come and interview? Like, would you rather talk to one person? Would you rather go have lunch on your own? Because actually like maybe you need a break from speaking to people. Dude, this is, this is such powerful stuff. I mean, it, it feels like what, what you convey to your leads is perception and empathy are paramount. Like and, they, they and, really under, need to understand that this this uniqueness in all of us is what is valuable in what you collaborate on together. Absolutely. And it's not like, and we'll never be perfect. So in a world where yeah. we're never perfect, like how do we just keep being better? And how do we just like, and, and that interview thing sounds so obvious now I've said it, but literally yeah. when we Oh, got it is not back, obvious. No, it is. And it, I, I applaud you for saying it. And I think a lot of people around the world are going to hear that very loud and clear. So that's very cool, Craig. And, and you've just got to be willing to make the change and then go, okay, so how are we going to do that? And how can we make that better for people? And, and I, that yeah. goes into your creative process, the way you hire, the way you run, like the way you feedback, the way you run teams, the way you train, who you promote, like all, all of those things. We um, often compare the video game industry to the film industry. And one of the things that's true about the film industry is there's a commonality in a, and, and, and that dreaded word homogeny on the way that crews kind of uh, staff up. And you can go from a film crew in Asia to a film crew in Vancouver or and there's some uniformity there. Is that something that the video game industry wants or does it need it? Uh, are we working towards that? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely shouldn't be the voice of the video game industry, so I'm just I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> I, I'm not sure I'd ever I've ever bought the games as film way of working because I think mm. a lot of a lot of building games is a is a very collaborative process amongst yes. a bunch of people that yeah, like I I don't think it is just about a job and I don't think it is just about specking work to hire like hey let's have some art let's have some code let's have some design let's have some audio and let's stick it all together i don't i'm not sure you get a great game at the end of that um so so i think it is more involved with that the 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 thing for me that's interesting and and actually just a real problem we wrestle with is i don't want rare to be 500 people or a thousand people like that the, the thought of running a studio that's a thousand people just sounds insane to me. Yes. Um, you know, rare we are around two hundred people, give or take five, ten. You know, and depending on how many how many contract staff we have at any time. We have and, one minute for you to name them all. Okay, I'll, I'll keep going. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but it's about like how do we how do we scale without. Like, how do we maintain the culture and team and everything we've got and we want without scaling, without, you know, and, and actually it's partnerships that, that allow us to do that. Well, that is a wonderful note to end on, my friend. Craig Duncan has given us a, an illuminating hour and 
Uh, we are all very grateful for you to be here with us today, Craig. Uh, loved speaking with you, and, and I hope we get to do this again very soon. That was my conversation with Craig Duncan. What a blast that was. I always learn so much at XDS. There will be other episodes for you to uh, listen to, so track those down. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and for subscribing to the Vix Basement podcast wherever you listen to us. Uh, thank you also for writing reviews of the show. It really helps us when you do that. Um, if you ever want to take part in a live taping of Vix Basement, we are actually live streaming interviews and things on our YouTube channel, which is at youtube.com slash EPNTV. Please come and join us there. We have an awesome community of uh, very intelligent and uh, very fun people that like to get engaged with the conversations that we have on EP. Thank you for your support. We will see you soon. And until then, play forever.